Hello, Firelighters. Thank you so much for being here. I know audio is an important part of your life. So just wanted to remind you that my audio course, 10 Pieces of Advice You'd Like to Have as a Child, is available on Listenable. You can get a seven-day free trial to listen to my course or the hundreds of other courses available on there. Just go to educationonfire.com forward slash listenable. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Today I'm delighted to be chatting to Lois Letchford. Now, Lois's dyslexia came to light at the age of 39 when she faced teaching her seven-year-old non-reading son, Nicholas. Examining her reading failure caused her to adapt and change lessons for her son. The results were dramatic. Lois went on and qualified as a reading specialist to use her non-traditional background, multi-continental experience and passion to assist other failing students. Her teaching and learning have equipped her with a unique skill set and perspective. As a teacher, she considers herself a literacy problem solver. In her book, Reversed, a memoir, she details her dyslexia and the journey of her son's dramatic failure in first grade. She tells of the twists and turns that promoted her passion and her son's dramatic academic turnaround, as in 2018 he received his PhD. Now this is an inspirational conversation which will have many of you really reaching for what it is that you can do to support your children who have the same sorts of struggles that Nicholas had to overcome. But first, a thank you to our sponsor. The National Association for Primary Education is a non-political UK charity. As Vice Chair, I'm delighted to be hosting six online CPD events to enable you to be supported as educators, no matter where you are in the world. To find out more information, go to nape.org.uk forward slash online hyphen events. That's nape.org.uk forward slash online hyphen events. Hi Lois, thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. I really appreciate you spending the time, but also you've got a fantastically important and inspirational um, story for us. So yeah, tell us about the book and tell us about that journey. Hello, Mark. I love the title of your show, Education on Fire. We have to be on fire. My book is called Reverse to Memoir and it's My journey started in this field in 1994 when my second son went to school and you send a child to school hoping all will be okay. My eldest son learns at the speed of light. My second son belongs to another species. He learns, he appears to learn at the snail's pace. And when children are young, the first thing you see about them other than how they look physically is how they speak and Nicholas's speech is slow he does a lot of thinking before anything comes out that child struggles in the classroom and on day six I spoke to the classroom teacher and said how's he going and she threw up her hands and said well I don't know how I'm going to cope with him this year you know he can't do a single thing he stares into space most of the day and he's just way behind What am I going to do? At that point, here we are now, what, 2021. How now I wish I had removed him from school at that moment of that day. I didn't. I sent him to school every day and he wet his pants, 
He bit his fingernails and he stared into space. It's a disastrous beginning to a child's life and the chances of getting out of such a, such a terrible spot are actually very few. And then we get you do the normal process, which is testing. What a way to do things. And the testing shows he can read 10 words after one year in school. Children normally can read 1,000 words. He can read 10, including on and no reversals. He's got no strengths. And above all, Mrs. Letchford, your son has a low IQ. And that's what happened. Anyway, he goes on to grade two. And then something unexpected happened. My husband's a professor and he has study leave in Oxford, England in 1995. We thought about sending Nicholas to school and I asked him if he wanted to go to school when we were in Oxford. And all I saw was the blood drain from his face and it went from pink to white. No, I'm not sending him to school. So I am going to teach him at home. And I have with me a series of books called Success for All. I begin using them. They've got isolated words on a page. Decode the letters, make a sound, create a word. By the time you got to the end of the page, you'd forgotten the first words. That didn't work. And I was there. My mother-in-law heard me getting frustrated and she said, Lois, put away what's not working and make learning fun. And I needed some additional input at this point because here's me, I'm really panicked. I'm worried about my child, about his life, about his future, about his learning. Make learning fun. What can he do? What can I do? Now, when I grew up, I realise when I'm starting to teach Nicholas that I struggled in school too. And that, in fact, writing for me is a real struggle. But I thought, what can I do? I'll have to write some little poems. So I wrote little poems for him, little rhyming poems. We read them together. We laughed over them. We found the rhyming words. We talked about all the vocabulary. We did everything. And he loved it. And because it happened once, we did it again and again and again. And this was hilarious. It was such a switch. He's learning this stuff at a snail's pace. But he's learning it and it's fun. One lady spoke to me when we were in Oxford and she said, asked about Nicholas and I said, oh, da, da, da. And she said, I've got a book for you. And she brought me Hear It, See It, Say It, Do It by Mary Atkinson and it teaches kids decoding. It was a series of four books. The second book had the consonant digraphs, the TH, the SH and the CH with short vowel only, all of these words. We went through that. We made word puzzles. We had a lot of fun with that. So we're doing two things. The poetry keeps going and going and going until you come up with double O because I wrote anything I could with any letters I could do and rhyming words, double O, look, book and cook. And I wrote a poem about Captain James Cook, as you would know, the last of the great explorers from Whitby in Yorkshire. And I wrote, Captain Cook had a notion there's a gap in the map in the great big ocean. He took a look without the help of any book, hoping to find a quiet little nook. And with that, we were at the library, at the science centre, and we're just going out. And the last room we saw was this map, the globes of the world from around 1500. And I looked at it and I said to Nicholas, look, Nicholas, there's a gap in the map. There's no Australia. 
And I think now for the first time, Nicholas had connected the words on the paper with the real world. I had ignored at this point, I didn't have enough knowledge or enough uh, material to have a map of the world. But finding this in the place was just phenomenal. And Nicola started to question. And he said to me, who came before Captain Cook? And I said, Nicholas, oh, that's easy. That's Christopher Columbus. And Nicola said, and who came before Columbus? And I'm stunned. I'm shocked. And what his questioning said to me was this child doesn't have a low IQ. And that was the first thing I needed to see. And that was the start of me continuing and the learning that went on. The other component of this is if I read anything to Nicholas from a book about any of these explorers, I lost him. He would just turn away and close down. The words were coming too fast for him to do anything. So I took to reading the book, turning it into a poem, and then presenting it to Nicholas. Now we can have a conversation. And that was astonishing because Nicholas just kept asking these questions and learning for him and me became so exciting. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary story. Um, and I think it just reinforces something which I talk about a lot on the podcast, which is all learning is individual. We have this mass education system. We have a way that it does because it's the way it's been set up. But even within that, there are lots of people who are struggling because you don't quite fit the mold. And when you have an extreme, it really doesn't work. But the essence is, is that everything should be personalized learning. Um, and I've already today had a conversation about how technology can support and help that in terms of the way education can change. I mean, the, the world is our oyster now in terms of personalized learning. But I think as as difficult as it must have been, and, and the, you can imagine the stress and the anxiety, especially in that early part of, the, uh, of your conversations and, and the learning, what you did get to do is to spend the time and what you did get to do is to have that personalized learning. And I think that's fantastic. And and however we can spread that message and then however we can have a starting point with every child, it's about you and how you learn, not about you fitting into how everybody else learns. Then that just changes the the whole feeling of it. And as you so brilliantly described, it's about how you, how you are about it and how you want to enter it rather than what you're just trying to get out of it. I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to take the story a little bit further on. We return to Australia and I meet the lady who had done the testing 12 months prior. And I said, we've had such a great time. Nicholas has learned so much. We've had so much fun. And she stood there. She put her hands on her hips and said, well, I've spoken to the reading teacher and he's gone backwards. And in fact, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. It took me a while to respond but I went back to her eventually and said, if he is this, if he is the worst child you've seen in 20 years of teaching, then don't expect him to learn like everybody else. That's what all I needed to say. <laughs> and, that, and, that's, and that's true, isn't it? Because it just, you know, I guess it's never a conversation you're going to be able to really articulate and have a dialogue with. Because if it needs to look a certain way or your expectations are it needs to look a certain way, or like you said about the testing, it needs to be registered in a certain way in terms of how you go about it, then 
then it's always going to be difficult. And 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 it's one of the things I you know I'm I'm a musician and and I teach drums and percussion. And the biggest part of what I do, especially in the first year or two, is getting across that how do you learn? What is it that you can do? Where does that repetition come? What is it that we can focus on that really helps? Some of this is a dialogue we're having together. Some of it's my thought processes in terms of starting to understand each child and how it goes. But that's the beauty of being able to teach one-to-one in the, in a way that you can't when it's when it's on mass. But it is just, just the key. I don't know where to go from here because the story takes multiple directions. But I think I want to focus on just what you said you know, that you're having a discussion with the child. Now, what I'm hearing is one, you believe that the child is capable of learning to play whatever you're teaching. That's number one. When we teach reading, I'm starting to question so many things. But the first thing is, what do you believe about that child? I'm in the position today because the reading teacher and that lady who did the testing in the In the US, they're called school diagnosticians. Failed our family. They failed my son. And the testing said, your child is dumb and there's nothing we can do about it. The teaching continued and the teaching was not only poor, the teaching was from that teacher. The reading teacher was terrible. The classroom teachers were phenomenal. And Nicholas had brilliant classroom teachers from grade two onwards. Not his first grade, but from grade two onwards. And it goes back to mindset. Are you willing to try things or are you going in with the mindset, this is what you have to do and this is the way you're going to do it because I know what's best. And if you don't do it this way, then you're not worthy of it. And we should just kind of, well, not complete the story, but just mention how Nicholas is in terms of where his education is now and and, and what he's achieved. Because I think... What we're not talking about here is kind of making do with any given situation. I mean, I think, well, you, you'll explain in a second, but I think we can safely say that he's thriving. He didn't only thrive. My husband would say he soared. And, and it, it wasn't a simple journey because my husband, as I said, is a professor. We actually moved to the United States to a place called Lubbock, Texas in 1999. Nicholas was in fifth grade in Australia. He's reading on a third grade reading level. And believe it or not, in Lubbock, Texas, he went from the bottom to the top. He graduated in the top 20% of his class from high school in physics, chemistry, mathematics, whatever you name it, he did it. And that was where he really grew. We returned to Australia where he did his undergraduate degree and he did two undergraduate degrees, one in engineering and one in mathematics, before getting a scholarship to do a PhD in applied mathematics from Oxford University where he's completed his PhD and he's still there today at this moment. I mean, that is incredible. I, th- I think on, on so many levels, but for me, it's also, again, we, we talk about this on the show a lot, but it's why it's so important. It's why I get so passionate about doing it. We need to give children the breadth and exposure to learning. And some of that is, as you've quite rightly said, in terms of how you go about teaching any given thing, but also about the breadth of what you get to uncover. And we often talk about it, that especially in this day and age, the STEM subjects are so important. It's what everything needs to be geared towards and music and the arts and all of that are getting quashed. Um, but the same thing can apply the other way around. Like you were saying, you know, you have to get to an age at a point where something like, you know, 
proper extended mass or physics or those sorts of things you have to know what that's like in order to know if that's where your spark comes from or your understanding or your knowledge and it's only when you get to experience all these things and also i think when you take away the pressure that you should be good at all of them or you know yes you're not going to learn them all in the same way but i certainly know that as a creative person actually learning to draw was something i found very difficult as a musician, I seem to be able to pick that up. And I can't tell you why <laughs> one seems better than the other, whether it's just teaching, whether it's interest, whether it's a natural ability. But I do know that across the board of all those subjects, I, you know, and you sort of grow into the ones that you like and the ones that you love and the ones that speak to you. And that's kind of really all you have to do. I mean, we've just had the Olympics in Tokyo. People don't do every single discipline they work out whether they can run fast or they can jump or they can, you know, whatever it happens to be, you know, you can only do, they're all athletes. They're all amazing at what they do, but they do specialize to a vast, you know, to, to a degree, you know, and even those that do multi disciplines, that's still within a certain field. Um, so why does it, you know, come as some surprise that that shouldn't be the case in education? We've gone through the story quickly, but I think it's important to, to for, you know, people can go back and read the book and find out exactly what happened and all the steps were involved. But I I became a reading specialist because of my son. And teaching for me went from this hair-raising experience, he can't do anything, he can't remember anything, to, wow, this is so exciting. <laughs> and, and you know what you said, the breadth and exposure, that time in Oxford was phenomenal. Okay, Nicholas graduated in 2018 and we had a big year because he graduated in my my book came out in March he graduated in May and then he married in July and he married an Indian girl so he had weddings in India and Australia and I was visiting them in the UK and I thought you know this is all done it's all over Nicholas tell me now what happened in first grade my articulate confident son went back to being a six-year-old and he cried and he could no words emerged. And that's when I realised the trauma from that year was still within him and it's something we had ignored and hadn't dealt with. And then I thought, I can't deal with this. Tell me what happened in Oxford. And his face just went the opposite way. He just laughed and he said, I remember the poems you wrote. And he named the poems. And then he said, the mapping, well, the mapping taught me to love learning and I never want to stop learning. And so here's me as a reading teacher and it's what he did was made me reflect and look at why what we did was so effective. And you just said it, the breadth and the exposure. We were not only reading and writing on paper in front of us in our classroom, we were exploring Oxford and every time you turn a corner there, there's something new to look at. There's something to connect with what we were doing. And that that experience was critical for his learning. And we think of teaching reading as learning about letters and sounds. And that's all you have to do. That's all you have to do for a few. But for the majority of children, particularly those who struggle, the more you embed that in their experience and their life, 
the easier learning becomes and the more connections they make and the more understanding they have. That's what I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's amazing. And just and take us into kind of how this has really um, supported you in the work that you're doing with other children as well. You know, in in you know, I guess that deep rooted understanding of the personalized connection that you have with every child must be really really important so sort of talk a little bit about that and also within the skills and and the 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 I guess that the work that you actually do in order to make it that successful my teaching started with Nicholas and because of you know the label the worst child you've seen in 20 years of teaching and seeing just such you know a, an ocean of difference between the reading teacher and the testing and what I did pushed me to understand more about the reading process. And I went back and I did studies. I was a physical education teacher and I became a reading teacher. That was fine. <clears throat> we moved to Lubbock, Texas. And while I'm there, I met a mother whose 13-year-old had spent four years in a phonics-only reading program. And I saw him saw a class one day in this place. It was a group of about 10 or 15 kids sitting at desks. If they were falling asleep, that was all they were doing. They all sat quietly in their desks and repeated exactly what the teacher said. That child could not read a sentence accurately, let alone comprehend it, when I picked him up. And I said to the mother, I think I know what to do. So the school district paid for me to teach him over the summer. I taught him to read in three months what hadn't happened in five years of schooling. In fact, he was going into seventh grade. <clears throat> At the end of the summer, the mother writes to the school district and said, you employ this woman or I sue you. I got employed. <laughs> and with that now, I'm teaching this boy one-to-one, -one, but also I am in touch with other children who have failed reading programs. And I'm with a 16-year-old who comes to me. They can't read 10 words. They've been in school every day for 10 years and they can't read. My job is to teach them and I do it. So I build up a lot of what do I have to do. And part of it is personal experience and personalising the teaching, which the teachers will say, well, we can't do that for everyone. But teachers got a role to play. The other component is really understanding the struggle that words provide children who have language difficulties. And that's a component you can control. You have to know that words have multiple meaning. You have to understand that, you know, the verbs to be is, are, was, were all have meaning. And there's a reason why you use is opposed to are. Because these simple things, the ch our children fail to understand. And when they're taught, it's just learn it as opposed to, hmm, let's think about this. So <clears throat> what I've found is that as a teacher, you have a push and a pull. And when I get my students, it's not only personalising the learning, but you say to them, what do you like? And the kids will say, I don't know. When you have failed for so long, you know nothing, you believe you know nothing, and you've been exposed to so little. 
And all you know is that you've got to learn these letters and sound, that teachers can push and pull and encourage students by showing them how great the world is and there are so many things you want to learn. And when a child says, I don't know, that's when you have to step in and show them that the world of learning, not only reading, but the world of learning is the most amazing world that we can open kids to. And that's what I did. For me, it really is a sense of, I think just picking up on exactly what you said there, is education and all the elements of it in some ways are just a tool in order for you to live your life and to express what it is that you're able to do, which is why, like you say, certain things work for some children, they don't work for others. But once you, like you just explained brilliantly there, when you step far enough back and it's kind of, we want to explore this, whatever that happens to be, you know, whether it's a passion, whether it's an area that you're interested in or, or just something which comes up, then you can find the tools that then work for you in order to do that. And like you say, it may well be that the reading and writing side of it has nothing to do with that on this particular day or in this particular moment. It could be something completely different. But then you can start to you know, use the skills that you have in order to make that work. Um, but you have to start by understanding that, don't you? I think that's the key thing. There's a whole lot of literature and a whole lot of work about marginalised stu students and marginalised children. I, my 16-year-old boy was Hispanic. He came with him with a buddy who was an African-American boy. Now, teaching these two kids was eye-opening to me because I started with a standardised text that I used because finding material that 16-year-olds will be interested in and engage in, be willing to read, is a real challenge in itself, let alone finding ones that are engaged in and have a reading level that they can do. The first thing I did with them was a play about a family, a father and a mother, inviting the father's boss over. It didn't work. And the kids don't say to you, I don't like this. All you see is body language. They're not engaged. They sit back. They do as you ask because you're the teacher. And it's up to the teacher to recognise this is not working. I have to do something else. My next go-to was actually a story about a father and two daughters. Here's me, a female teacher teaching two boys. And I said, can I read this to you? Oh, it's about girls, but it's really funny. It's really, oh, yeah, I'll listen. They laughed. They roared laughing. And I said, but, you know, we can't read this play as it is. But what if I became the father and I became a mother and we changed the girls to the boys? That play was transformative because they could see themselves in it. The first play didn't work because my boys had no fathers in their household and it became culturally relevant. Can I see myself in this situation? And it's something we have ignored. And children who do well in school and find school easy can bridge this gap but children who are struggling and who are vulnerable and who are a minority are left behind because we have not included them in the literature. It's come up for me before, this idea of community. And, and the reason I think community is the word is because you only kind of know what you know. You know, my family looks like this. My school looks like this. My local community, whether it's clubs or shops or anything, looks like this. 
and therefore like I say it has to be relevant it has to be an understanding process it's step by step you can open the whole world up by starting there and showing them anything else you know which they may or may not want to step into but just everything being abstract is just like I say it's not engaging and 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 so I think that concept of of community in terms of linking everything into what you know has to be the starting point for engagement I think that's written about in the academic literature and that's exactly what I did that day it was a community I was never the teacher who knows everything and you've got to learn it but the three of us became a community and we we learned to trust each other and when my students said I can't remember this can I change of course we can change it you know we've changed it we can change anything and you know there are things that teachers can do walk and talk with children write it down give them the experience because part of the other problem is not only is it abstract but we make assumptions about child knowledge i've said this and because i've said that and that picture's in my mind you've got the same one no and that's the difference you know that the kids come to us as you said i totally agree with you they come with a very small world and we are the ones who have to enter that and help them see the relevance to what we're doing. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, and it's something which I have to really clock myself on sometimes is that kind of because I know it, one, because I'm usually older or, or because I've experienced it or, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. Are you really sure that the people you're teaching know it and the difficulty with that is because maybe nine out of ten do because the way that you're explaining it makes sense and you're doing it in a brilliant way but you don't know until you know and there might be that one that doesn't and so you have to clock yourself enough just to think are they fudging this do they really understand um and that's obviously where your experience comes in and i think that's really really key and the other thing which i really i think is important about what we've covered so far is the fact that we know education has to look different in every situation we just talked about community and what's available you know it would be brilliant if every pupil had the opportunity to have personalized learning across the board in a way and we like we mentioned before the you know, technology and new ways of learning and blended learning and all that i think will help that but also just understanding that if it's not working for your child in whatever situation that is, you know, like I say, it may be that the class teacher's not being as supportive as you would hope or they're struggling in whatever area that is, being open to the fact that someone like Lois has the opportunity to help them in this area, someone else can help them in a different area, or we can just even have a conversation about whether being in school is the right thing or any of those things just means that you're then taking control of the learning for your family and i think then you go about finding the solution that you need and someone's around whether it happens to be like they say these days can be online or it may be that there's someone next door or someone down the street or someone that someone knows that knows something else that knows a book or a, or a course that kind of works for you but i think just assuming that it has to look a certain way because you drop them off at the school gate and pick them up at 18 <laughs> is um is just not the way not the way it works for anybody but and as we sort of said before, certainly doesn't work for some people where they never even get out the starting gate. Being open, mindset. On my website, I have got, you know, a little free giveaway and it's called MAPS, M-A-P-S. The M is for mindset. 
I think at the moment, you know, there's a fight in the United States about whether you're teaching the science of reading or whether you're teaching balanced literacy. I can't even get into that argument because it just frustrates me beyond belief. The bottom line is, is that child learning to read? Yes or no? And if they're not, what are we going to do about it? It's mindset. You know, what I'm seeing in this discussion about science of reading versus whatever is that I am going to do this and this is the way it works. That's not the case. You have to be reflective, a reflective teacher to say, what am I doing that's working? What am I not doing? What else do I have to do? And you said it, nine out of 10 will be getting it. What are you going to do with the 10th one? And here we come back to the children. They don't have the language to say, I don't get this. All they do is sit back, they become disengaged, their behaviour deteriorates and they don't even have the words to say, I don't understand, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Nicholas's poor teachers taught me a huge amount. I was sitting in uh, when Nicholas was in second grade watching his reading teacher work one day with Nicholas and she said to him, it would have been a Monday or a Tuesday, what did you do on the weekend? Let's write about what you did on the weekend. And Nicholas sat there. And then his eyes rolled into the back of his head. And he looks like he's gone. And I really think at that time, in fact, his mind is doing loops that we don't know about to try and understand what she's saying. And I said to him, because I was there, I said, Nicholas, we went to a park on the weekend. And I remembered because Nicholas had gone off by himself and everyone else was playing. And Nicholas was very happy in his own world. And we can write about that. If I hadn't been there, the teacher would have had nothing to say. The problem, there are multiple problems on multiple levels. The teacher said, what did you do on the weekend? She didn't qualify, ask him first. She expected he understood the weekend. He may not have understood what she was even talking about. She's talking about something abstract that she cannot contribute to. She's got no idea what the kid did on the weekend. The better thing would have been to do is to take that kid for a walk, play on the playground, then go back inside and say, look at us, let's write about what we just did. Now you can contribute to the child's writing and the child's experience. You can't do that when you're saying, what did you do whenever? It is amazing. Just before we start to round up, take us a little bit through the the, the book itself. And, and just, I mean, is it the journey that you've explained, obviously, in much more depth and much more things? How, how is it organized? What sort of um, takeaways can we get beyond what you've already explained? My book is organized in six parts because Nicholas's journey happened on three continents and okay let me finish the question first it's organized in six parts it's where we were and the learning that happened during that time in brisbane australia in oxford england back to brisbane and then over to the united states to where nicholas went from the bottom to the top you can take away how i taught nicholas the growths that happened and why it happened in lubbock and why that was so important in taking him from the bottom to the top and then in the second last chapter, uh, part five, I talk about my students and what I did for them and the struggles that children have with language. 
uh, and then the final chapter is the culmination of the story. It To me, it's a story of modern-day Helen Keller, and there's a lot of learning that teachers can take away from my book. It's a story. It's written as a story. And the best compliment I've had, the number of compliments, is I couldn't put this book down. I'm dyslexic myself. I grew up reading words. I was not aware that I was dyslexic. I just thought I was dumb. So writing a book for me is impossible. So I, when I finished my master's here in, we came over, da, 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 we did a whole lot of things. But we're in upstate New York. I finished my master's and they said, what do you want to do now? I'd like to write Nicholas Astoria. So I sat down and wrote it up. And, of course, the verb tenses, everything's just a mess. So I started to go to writing classes. And I met a young girl who's my kid's age. And she said, I'll help you. The book to me is now brilliant because we've got characters in it, characters you like, characters you hate. And it's based on fact. So buy a copy, write a review, read it, learn from it. It's not only inspiration. It tells you, you know, like Helen Keller's story, there's so much that we can do for children if we understand what's happening. Can I tell you the most exciting thing that I've done since? Yeah, please do. Because I struggle with this writing part. I have a lot of knowledge about the reading process. I cannot, could not write an academic paper on my own. So I connected with a professor, emeritus professor, Tim Brzezinski, and I wrote and said, would you write with me? We've had a paper published in The Reading Teacher. It's the first one we put there, and it came out in July this year. And and one of the reviewers says, I want this paper published because we haven't talked about text cohesion in 35 years that sounds amazing and and i love the way you put the book together i love the way that it with the story and and i also love the fact you know if we go back to this community idea it's not like this all happened in your local school that was in two minutes of your house you know like you say you've done it over three continents you've done it over different age groups and and all of those things together and yet the themes are still the same you know, the opportunities are still the same the obstacles are still the same, but the successes are also the same as well because, like we said, it's that individual learning and knowing how you can go about it. And I think what you've just articulated in terms of, of your success there is the fact that what is it do I want to achieve? What are my strengths? What are my limitations? How can I go about finding the tools or the people that I need to make that a reality? The rest of it is just gumph, actually, in terms of it has to be like this. I've got to do it like this. This is the process. This is the way I do it. It's not. And I think as soon as you hear these stories enough and you can take yourself far enough back to go, this is just what I'm all about. This is what I want my learning to look like. And I know I'm against nine out of 10 people or or whatever, 99% of the population a lot of the time. It's right for me. And I think the more we can share these stories, the more we can hear these things, the more that we know it's not just the odd person. It's many people around the world and you can connect with them and you can learn from them and you can share these things and read about them, find out about it in whichever way you can. It's going to make a difference to everyone's life. So Lois, thank you so much for sharing and being here. Tell us your website and, and where people can find out more about you, obviously, as well as the book. I'm on www.loisletchford.com. I'm on LinkedIn, on Facebook and Twitter. Fantastic. I, I just love what you are doing and I just stand with you. 
Yeah, read my book. And we do have to share more inspirational stories of not only overcoming, but how. And that's what my story tells. And and why? No one in in Brisbane, Australia, thought Nicholas would achieve anything in 1995 or 1996. And look at the brain power we could have lost. That's what drives me. We don't know what those children have got. Yeah, incredible. And there's just one final thing I want to pick up there because it's something which has been really niggling me for a while. At the end of every episode, I say education is not the filling of a pail but the lighting of a fire. And I totally believe that. But I think the extra nuance is what you just said, is once you get to that point, you then do need to know what you can do, what you need to have, understand and learn to make that fire into something which comes into the world. And I think understanding that it's a combination of all of those things in a personalized way that how you go about it, then you've got the tools, like you said, the mindset, the understanding, the knowledge, the framework to be able to make it into a, a life that you want to live. So fantastic. Thank you so much. We'll have links to all of those things that you mentioned in terms of the website and all the social groups and everything on the on the show notes so people can click through. So brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Lewis. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for listening. It's such a pleasure to be able to bring you such wisdom and inspiration. If I could ask you to do one thing, please share this podcast with one other person just so that we can really make the most of our ripple effect of being able to just reach as many people as possible. And that way we can make the biggest difference in the world. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to know more about the community and how to get involved, please go to educationonfire.com forward slash fire. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.